you don't do many audits of any kind before you realize that you only learn what the auditee tells you. So if the auditee is frightened of you, they don't tell you anything. You can audit how you're doing well like. And the only not in the whole thing is internal auditors shall not audit their own work. Hello, I'm Craig Thornton and welcome to the Quest to QHSE. In this weekly podcast, I, alongside my special guests, will be discussing the issues and barriers with managing your quality, health and safety and environmental compliance systems. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to the Quest to QHSE wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions for me or my guests, then check us out on Facebook at Quest to QHSE. It would be great if you leave us a review on your podcast app. This helps others to find us. This podcast is sponsored by Mango. Mango is a cloud-based integrated compliance software product that will get everyone in your organization involved and participating in your QHSE systems. In today's episode of the podcast, we are joined by Ian Hendra to discuss an alternative approach to internal audits. Ian has a vast knowledge in quality, risk, food safety and compliance. He's always thought-provoking and challenges conventional thinking around QHSE. Ian has some really interesting thoughts on internal auditing. He may even change your belief systems around it. So welcome, Ian, and on to today's topic. Okay. Thank you, Craig. Let's get into this if you're struggling with internal auditing. I've I've been doing internal auditing a very, very long time, uh, and I've struggled with it since day one. Um, Still struggle with it now. Well, not quite as much as I used to. So... I'm going to cover three things basically. I'm going to tell you, going to share some history according to me anyway. I'm going to try and explain to you what I think is wrong with the conventional approach and I'm going to come up with a better way because there's no point in grumbling about anything if you can't think of a better way to do it. Here we go. Food safety is, a, is, a, is something I got into only quite recently. Um, back in the days when I earned an honest living before I got into quality systems and auditing, I was a radiological engineer. I spent my life working with diagnostic X-ray equipment in hospitals, and I, and I ended up at 30 years of age working for the Department of Health and Social Security (DHSS), National Health Service Procurement Directorate, which was killed off by Margaret Thatcher, and Scientific and Technical Branch Group 6A. Now, Group 6A was the radiological section, and our role in those days was to serve as the consultancy agency that supplied the whole of the UK National Health Service with new X-ray equipment. When I joined that outfit in 1976, the budget was £40 million a year for new X-ray equipment and £40 million a year for X-ray film. And we were responsible for the disposition of those funds. Now, what we did, we had big contracts with all the, all the major suppliers, suppliers all across the world, at GE, Philips, Siemens, Kodak, everybody, all the big companies. And we bought gear from them in huge quantities. We were the largest single buyer of X-ray equipment in the world by a country mile. And we used to, so when the installations were installed, we used to audit them. And when they were satisfactorily audited, the the, the, the supplier got paid the final 5% retention. There were five of us covering the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, There were 15 regions in the health service in those days, each with a population of 3 or 4 million people. And we all, the five of us, had three regions each. Now, 
what's interesting about that is in those days one regional health service one regional health service in the UK was about the same size as the whole of the New Zealand Health Service now. Over those seven years I did a thousand installations audits and it was between 1977 and 1984. Those dates are important because that is the time when the world woke up to the fact that quality was rubbish, uh, certainly to in Britain. For example, in those days I could walk into an x-ray department and if I knew who the engineer was, I could write the grumble list before I opened my tool case. knew exactly what I was going to find wrong. And that went on for years. We got fed up with that and on the 14th of May 1984, yes, that's as long ago as that, I did my management and quality systems auditing course which lasted, would you believe, 52 hours. It was 52 hours in a week. It wasn't the sort of three-day magic wonder that it is these days. It was 52 hours. It started at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning and finished 52 working hours later, late on the Friday of that week. The two guys that ran it, this is important, these guys were ex-Ministry of Defence, or they were Ministry of Defence. Ministry of Defence started all this. Don't, don't let anybody kid you that it came from anywhere else. ISO 9001 is and always was a supplier selection criterion for defence contractors. That's what it is and it still is as far as I can see. Uh, NATO is the, is the biggest user of the standard and the standard is, um, is still applicable in NATO procurement contracts just as it was then. So that's who these guys were about and what was it all about? Well, we got fed up with all this inspection stuff so we invented a scheme that was based on the uh, NATO, on, on the defence system and we set up a thing called the DHSS Good Manufacturing Guides to BS 5750-1979 Part 2. Now, this, this standard was effectively the, the defence standard. So we went from inspecting installations to doing audits on suppliers. So we went from the delivery end of the contract to the procurement end of the contract. And this is how I switched from inspecting installations to auditing companies. Right? Now, this statement here is quality assurance equals effective management. It got slammed into us once an hour for the, each of those 52 hours during that week. Very, very hard. We thoroughly enjoyed every second of it. What's intriguing in this story to you guys now is this. Is there was not one single solitary word in any minute of those 52 hours about internal auditing. It did not exist. Cut a long story short, the standard came from a NATO committee called AC250 that started out in 1955 and it had a tactical problem. The tactical problem it tried to was addressing was how to select suppliers when the Russian, this is the Cold War, when the Russian Navy had blockaded the Atlantic. So if you wanted a new suspension part for your American jet fighter, how did you get somebody in France to make it? Because you couldn't get it from America. And that was the tactical issue that that led to working out that quality has to be designed in from the start, you can't inspect it in later. So these standards appeared and they were called the Allied Quality Assurance Procedures, AQAPS. In the UK, very quickly they became the Defence Standards 0520 series, but they applied to individual contracts at three levels. There was, and those familiar with 9001, 9002, 9003 will get this. The first level was all about design, production and supply. The second level was production and supply. And the third level was supply only. Now, there are relatively few design people. This was defence, so you didn't, 
you know, they're only you only bought a few whole airplanes and ships and navigation systems and radar systems. But there were millions, thousands of subcontractors. So there were there weren't many of these certifications. There were thousands of these and almost none of these because nobody particularly cared about the stuff is to be honest. And not one single word about internal auditing. Not a single word. In 1979, those defence standards became BS5750 because the the guy who'd set it up at the Ministry of Defence became Director General of BSI. That's that's the way it happened. In 1984, we saw the, the advent of the UK National Quality Campaign. This National Quality Campaign. This guys is very very important because this is why all of us listening to this do what we do. This is where it came from. The UK National Quality Campaign in 1984. It was never repeated anywhere else at this level, anywhere in the world. It came from a, a Department of Trade white paper that grumbled about quality of British products, and it had five elements. It set up BS 5750 as the standard that will sort out lousy quality. This is interesting. It set up a register of consultants who would tell people how to implement this system. Craig, you want to find some of these guys? <laughs> uh, yeah. I know a few of them. They're a bit older than me. Um, they're, they're, they're a massive budget, huge budget for consultancy grants, so you could companies could get certified. You could get a grant for two thirds the cost of 15 days consultancy if you achieved a registration that is standard. Two thirds the cost of 15 days consultancy. Now, if you want to know where the signposted quality manual, what I call the 15 day quality manual, came from, this is where it came from because the government paid for it. They enabled an external certification service um, and they set up accreditation bodies. Now the accreditation bodies were there to do two things. Firstly, to keep the standards leveled in the in level the playing field for certification, but secondly, to get around the conflict of interest that existed because the, the fees for the certification body came from the government grants that were being dished out to companies wanting to get certified. So they called it conflict of interest. Um, and that's why these days it still persists that certification bodies aren't allowed to advise on quality systems or systems they certify. But that's where it comes from. It's all about protecting this huge billions of dollars, of pounds, that the Department of Trade let, you let loose for, for 10 years in the, in the 1980s. Still not one single word about internal auditing. I have nothing to add in any of this. In 1987, we got this ISO 9001, 2, and 3 appeared. Uh, they were almost identical to the 5750, including this internal audit thing. And everybody went, What's that? What on earth is this internal audit thing? It came from nowhere. If you, if you dismantle BS 5750 1979 into the standards that were existing at the time, you, you end up inevitably back to three beautiful pieces of work produced by the BSI and they were called handbooks 22, 23, 24, 25. And there were 2,000 pages, double-sided A4, two columns of standards that all related to quality assurance systems of some kind or other, including costing, right? including the financial side. There were sampling standards and all sorts of standards about how to do everything. The bit that was missing was internal audit. You could do a word search on it right now and not find the expression internal audit anywhere in any one of those 2000 A4 side pages. Was not there. 
but yet it appeared it flopped out as for 417 in ISO 9001 um, and nobody knew what it meant. What disappeared at roughly the same time was a clause called final inspection and test. And the final inspection and test clause said, a supplier shall carry up final inspections and tests to ensure that to all the tests that have been done have been done and that the results are satisfactory. Now my problem was that in 1988 when I joined this uh, CB, I had to suss out this internal audit thing for my CB and develop some kind of way of auditing. What did I do? What everybody else did, guys, I'm not genius. We only knew about external contractor assessment. We'd just done these 52-hour courses, all of us, and we did this stuff every day. We knew what auditing was. Of course we did. So we stuck to our knitting. And we tuned up the external auditor assessment system for internal audit. The problem we all missed is that it's a different problem, completely different problem you're answering when you're doing external contractor assessments and when you're doing internal audit. The client is different and the client has different expectations and it took me 20 years to realise that. ISO 9001, 19011 appeared eventually but it merely compounded the felony. What's that stand? And it really, ISO 19011, which is the standard on, on internal and external auditing, it's referred to in 9001, has been for years. But what it basically does is to regurgitate this uh, external contractor thing. And the, and the approach that hasn't changed is, is the question and answer, and I call it the don't lie, show me approach. But I mean, external auditing inevitably demands that because you're working on behalf of a, of a customer. But that's not a rational question for an internal audit. And so the, the whole don't lie, show me thing sets up an adversarial relationship, generally speaking. People try very hard to, 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 to quiet it all down. And I do it too. I've done it for years. I, I, I play right back. I'm right on the back foot with this don't lie. very gentle with it. But it's still there. And, and don't lie, show me is basically how you do an external audit. Just very briefly, where else does an internal audit appear? Well, you won't find internal audit in Lean Six Sigma, except as a way for the people who do the work to better lay out a workplace. It doesn't appear in Business Excellence, Baldridge, any of that. It doesn't appear in Zero Defect. In Quality is Free, Phil Crosby says, few functions are spoken about more and understood less than, in, than auditing. It's often the last refuge for those who really don't know how to run a prevention-orientated life. In TQM, Dr. Deming didn't mention it at any point in his four-day course. Why is that significant? Because if in New Zealand here in particular, if you look out into the car park, you find nearly every car is Japanese. This was a key understanding when you mentioned this on LinkedIn, where you said internal auditing wasn't mentioned by uh, Dr. Deming. And I thought, oh, that, that stopped me in my tracks. And I sort of went back through Deming and looked at some of his stuff. And you're right, it's like, um, it's in none of his 14 principles of management, and I think you even mentioned it later around that. So, quite interesting. Why are we doing this internal auditing game when we exactly really... Exactly right. Craig, I have a book here, which is actually a, if you like, it's a, it's a word-for-word -word, uh, replay, very nicely written, of his four-day course, of Dr. Deming's four-day course, that changed the world, of course, as you know. In Japan, certainly, and and there it's not there. It just there isn't a single word about it. Hmm. Also, 
Dr. Duran, Dr. Joseph Duran's tome, I call it, the Quality Control Handbook, you know, the 1,500-page doorstop. There's nothing in there either. Uh, nothing in there at all. About, well, there is a few pages, but it's, it's, it doesn't say anything about internal audit. It doesn't place any weight on internal audit at all. What it does place weight on is quality assurance equals effective management. So here's Deming. Let's get into Deming. Deming invented the, the Plan Do Check Act, or he called it Plan Do Check Act. It came from Walter Schuhart's cycle of continual improvement. Deming was Schuhart's uh, right-hand man um, in, in the 1930s. In a book called Out of the Crisis, where Deming described how his, his interventions in Japan and how he turned the, the national economy around, he talks about these 14 points for the transformation of management. And he promulgated them once he was discovered in the West. Dr. Deming was born in 1900 and he died of cancer in 1993. He wasn't discovered in the West until 1984. He was 84 years old. So he was only with us in the West for nine years. So you think, I'm past it, mate? You haven't seen nothing yet. <laughs> right, 14 points for the transformation of management. And this, these 14 points are the core of Japanese success in quality assurance. Okay. The problem with internal audit as we see it, as we do it with this current, like all the conventional uh, don't lie, show me approach, is that, that first of all, it's, it's point number three, Dr. Deming says, is um, cease dependence upon inspection, build quality into the product in the first place. You can't audit it in either. Well, the AC250 came to that view too. Um, in completely in parallel. Nobody in 1955 who was a member of AC250 at NATO had the foggiest idea who Dr. Deming was. Point number five, it says improve constantly and forever the system of production and service, not just at defined intervals, guys. You do this all the time. Drive out fear so that everyone may work effectively. Now, my reading of internal audit in many of the thousands of companies I've audited I have to, by the way, one thing I didn't tell you, um, I, I have served 2,000 days as an ISO 9001 auditor all over the world. I count the days in my diary and it's about 2,000 over a period of 20 years or so. It's about 100 days a year on average for 20 years. So I can tell you that this drive out fear thing is significant. Many of the companies that I have, most of them, but not all of them, regard internal audit with kind of fear and trembling, they're very uncomfortable about it. The point is that confrontation is completely pointless. You don't do many audits of any kind before you realise that you only learn what the auditee tells you. So if the auditee is frightened of you, they don't tell you anything. Hmm. Point number nine, break down barriers between departments. People must work as a team to foresee problems. So having departments audit each other is totally counterproductive. It completely misses the point. Right? If you want to have departments working together, then have departments working together as improvement teams. Don't set one to audit the other. Point number 10, remove barriers that rob workers of pride in workmanship. So don't have internal auditors second-guessing them then. It's not nice. It's not polite for a start. 
Point number 11, remove barriers that rob people in management of their right to private workmanship. So don't have internal auditors second-guessing them either. Instead, as Dr. Deming says, substitute leadership and a vigorous program of education and self-improvement for everyone. Now, one way to do that is to establish properly resourced cross-functional teams to break down silos. And I have the pleasure at the moment of working for one organization who does that absolutely beautifully. And we struggle with internal audit. Right, let's get back to the basics. Uh, we're talking about ISO 9001, 2015 iteration. This has remained unchanged, uh, certainly since ISO 9001, 2017 years ago. So the organization shall conduct internal audits at planned intervals. Now, what's a planned interval? A planned interval is a period of time that, in my mind, stretches from uh, now to never. Um, so if you wanted to start beating up about seeing planned interval, you can turn around and say never, uh, and that's a planned interval. We'll never get to it. It's a, it's a hard fight, and you don't win, but it's a good, good argument. It wastes time in the audit. Right, so what you do is you set the planned intervals up. So you, determine, you get management to determine the intervals, but they can be variable. They don't have to be fixed. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. There are three things you need to do. The first thing you need to do is to audit that the organization conforms to its own requirements for its quality management system. It's a bit late. If you have to audit conformity with that, it's all a bit late, it seems to me. You should be working in conformance from the instant you pick up your pen or your spanner or your whatever it is. The moment you work into the place, you shouldn't sort of let it drift around until somebody comes along and says, oh, you're not complying. Anyway, so it conforms to the organization's own requirements <laughs> and the requirements of this international standard. Uh, in fact, as I will summarize later, maintaining conformity with the management system is probably management's first and most important role. Management only has two things to do, in my view. They have to deploy the resources, that's money and people, and conform to the system to produce the goods they're expected to produce. That's it, management in a nutshell. So auditing, conformity, a bit late, really. Anyway, standard requires it. And the second bit is to audit that the system is effectively implemented and maintained. Bit late again in the piece. If you find six months down the track, oh, all that work we've been doing for the last six months, uh, it, our system doesn't work, guys. Our system, we haven't been following our system. You know, all those complaints we get, well, it's not that surprising, is it? Anyway, that's me being skeptical. Right, three processes that might be a bit novel, and this, this is the new bit. First of all, you use audit as a tool, so you require managers to commission investigations to validate conformity in areas where they have concerns. Now, this is converting internal audit into a tool that managers use to help them. Not that they have to do, not a tool, not a thing that beats them up on a regular basis because they have to. And the way to do that is to put on, on standard agenda on team meetings, management meetings, for example, the standard agenda item that says, is there anything worrying us that in which do, do, for doing an audit on would help to resolve? Point number two, and this is the one that gets um, this bit here, does actually, you get a real neat combination of these two together. And this is, now I do this religiously, and I set up a thing I call a dime matrix versus the standard. 
with, and I put an annual audit check just to make sure it was still current. I'll tell you what, tell you what diamond is in a minute. All right. Next bit. And then for the, this one, it's effectively implemented and maintained. You use cross-functional team-based brainstorming tools from the Memory Jogger 2 within routine process, product, and project review procedures. And I'll show you what that means too. Now, this really works. This is brilliant. Now, a dime metrics is an exposition of conformity. That's the terminology I use from the aviation industry where having to produce an exposition of conformity is necessary to get an operating license, whether you want to be an air traffic control service, whether you want to build airplanes, whether you want to run an airline. There's a set of rules that you have to meet established by the local civil aviation authority. And in New Zealand, anyway, you have to produce an exposition of conformity against those rules that the civil aviation regulator reviews before they even come on site and do an audit on you to make sure you're complying with those rules. So there you go. Um, now, what is this exposition? So how does it work? Here we go. It's a big matrix, strangely enough. That's why it's called a dime matrix. And there's only one either. So there's rows and columns. Now, there's one item of conformity per row. If you break down ISO 9001 2008, there are 224 items of conformity. And breaching any one of which, of course, carries counter to your claim to comply with the whole lot. The matrix only uses the standards, words in the standard. So I'm, I'm going to say this now. Do not change the words in the standard. The the, don't introduce extra words into the standard. That's tiger country. You can certainly invert the, sen invert the sentences from statements into questions by reversing the noun and the verb, but we all learn how to do that at school. The, the matrix consists of seven columns. Right? There's a row number, there's the item, which is the question. Then you, then you have five columns. The first column is, where do we document that we address this item? How do we implement that we address this item? Who's monitoring, or what's monitoring? that we're complying with this item, and where's the evidence? DIME, DIME means documented, implemented, monitored, yeah. effective. Is that right? Or evidence? Effective or evidence. Effective or, or evidence. Ah, OK. Yeah, evidence, evidence of effectiveness. Right. And I've got a color code, which I call RAG, red, amber, green. I'm an engineer, so everybody needs a RAG. So red means uh, the, the clause is applicable, but it's not met. Amber means it's applicable, but I don't believe you. And green means applicable, and it is met. Certainly, I'm going to be yeah. using this for Mango. I'm going to use the same methodology and create a dime for how Mango is going to achieve each of the yeah. clauses yeah. of ISO 9001. So. You see, the standard doesn't have any specification for what an internal audit procedure is. And that's the point that a lot of people miss. You can audit how you're doing well like. And the only not in the whole thing is that internal auditors shall not audit their own work. That's it. That's the only stumbling block you've got to avoid. But you can define your internal audit program how you like. So that's why you, probably do, you do this spreadsheet with another person just to ensure that you're not, so that, that prevents the conflict of interest where you're not auditing your own work, you're using that other person to verify that you're not, you know, you're not Correct. saying yes, that everything's perfect on the systems that Correct. you look after. Right. All right. Does that make sense? That's a good question, Craig. Thanks. Do you believe we audit to ensure quality or to ensure compliance? 
you can't audit to ensure compliance because compliance is an ongoing requirement. Um, the standard requires that you check every now and again that you're complying with the standard, but compliance isn't something that you audit. Compliance is something you build in. Um, you audit for effectiveness, right. looking for opportunities for improvement. So you look like you say you audit for effective management. Okay, keep going. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So that's how you do the compliance bit. Um, now, how do you do the other bit, the effective implementation? If you've not come across memory joggers, um, I suggest you do so. They're 25 bucks a kick, and they're absolutely superb pieces of, of publication. They've been around since the early 80s. Um, they were invented. They were the gold QPC is the outfit that um, that publishes them. Um, they were the first organisation to promulgate Dr. Deming's teachings from the early 1980s when he became discovered in the United States. They were promulgated against the the, the statement that said. Dr. Deming has been teaching this stuff for 50 years in Japan, but none of it is in English. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, bearing in mind that Dr. Deming developed it in the 30s and 40s during the war. What do you do to run an affinity? Some people know about affinity diagrams, other people don't. But basically what you do is you set up a room, you put up wall sheets that you can stick post-its on, and you get some vivids. You assemble a cross-functional team, that is a cross-functional team, who have experience in the area you want to sort out. You agree a wording of a question. In other words, what are we here to solve? Um, it's important to agree the wording so that everybody has the same comprehension of what the question actually means. This all makes sense in the moment, guys. I just... You then agree brainstorming rules. What do I mean by that? Well, you say one person speaks at a time, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's no such thing as a stupid statement. Nobody takes the rise out of anybody else. And what's said in this room stays in this room. Now, the facilitator, who I call the internal auditor, and this requires a set of internal audit skills that I call now call facilitation. So instead of internal auditors wasting their time asking silly questions around the place, you get them to facilitate discussions like this. and and. They've, the point is to facilitate plenty of discussions. Now you've got a question here, and what you want is answers, single answers written on post-it notes. And the answer has to contain a noun and a verb. It has to be a sentence. What happens next is that the facilitator then, as these questions come out, as these answers, sorry, as these answers come out on post-it notes, the facilitator just sticks them up on these wall sheets anywhere, at random, all over the place. The facilitator's job is to make sure that everybody has their say, and in particular, you look out for the bloke who doesn't say very much because he's probably the smartest. And and you 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 keep going as a facilitator. When I'm facilitating, I'm always keeping an eye out for the people who are being very quiet. I'm always asking them for their views, and that's I say, I kid you not, I've done this what, a couple of hundred times now, and it's always the guy who's the quietest that comes up with the real smart stuff. It's really cool. Right, so when the discussion has stopped, and inevitably it does, the, the flow, you get a rapid flow of these post-it notes to start, to start with, and it all peters off. Now, when you, um, so you end up with this white, these sheets of paper on the wall covered in these post-it notes. 
You know, the biggest I've ever done is 130. And what you do is you say to the group, okay, I want, can you sort them out, please? And they look at you all blank, and you say, yes, you get, please, I want you to come round and, and just stand here, stand there and sort, sort them into columns, please. Columns down the page. Right. The only constraint is that you're not allowed to talk to each other. You have to do it in complete silence. And that is the active component in the whole affinity diagram, the sort in silence bit. You might have to write duplicates of post-it notes because people keep moving them around. That's fine. Right. But what you'll end up with is much giggles and poking and laughing. People thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this. It's a real good call. You'll end up with um, columns. And then you get the group to write summary headers that reflect what each column says. And the summary headers at the top of each column should be such that you could tear up or throw away the detail in the columns underneath. You don't do that, but that's the idea. You want a summary header that crystallizes what the column talks about. The important thing of quality systems is if teams are involved in, and again, it's a principle of quality management, is if you've got engagement of people, you'll get the change will happen uh, a lot easier when you do want to make change because the people that were involved in this project will be the ones that will will make the change and make the change uh, nice and slick and seamless. So that's right. It's nice. Absolutely. So, right. So instead of going around with your checklist and ticking off checklist boxes, you're actually doing a whole improvement project looking at a particular area yeah, and, right. and solving a whole lot of problems just two 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 hour sessions with everybody engaged in the process like that it. was to deal with this one and then and then what we do is that we we call up as a, so we have a very a very healthy team structure with weekly team meetings fortnightly team meetings monthly team meetings yeah. and in each case there, there are agenda items that call this up is there any have we got any problems guys we need to worry about mm. Now what it does, this kind of thing does, it actually breaks down the silos. Right? So our scientists talk to our software engineers, talk to our support people, talk to our admin people, even talk to the accountants. Gee, what? Hmm. even they're involved. So basically, in summary, what am I going to say? Well, internal audit came from nowhere. Uh, my fear is that it lets management off the hook. Whereas when I was taught my internal or my external auditing in 1984, quality assurance equals effective management. It was we were it was hammered into us during those 52 hours that if you wanted to audit conformity with the management system, you spoke to managers. That was their job, and 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 so I say here, management is responsible for conformity and system effective. Period. It ain't the auditor's job. If the auditors are that good, why don't you make them managers? Internal audit, as we know it, is a peculiar ISO. It's a ISO peculiarity. Other well-known, very effective, and arguably more effective quality systems than ISO 9001, like Lean and and all those stuff and TQM, just don't bother with it. They have they, they place they place their faith and their resource in in education, continual improvement, and internal communications, and making managers responsible. I'm absolutely convinced that internal audit is totally worthless if it adds no value, and we're doing guys, it's too expensive. It's very expensive for a start to take people off 
duties and get an auditing stuff if there's no benefit. So use it as a tool and, and bend it so it works as a tool. Bend it to identify issues. Bend it so it becomes part of your cause analysis system. And I, I fear that using the semi-confrontational external audit methodology actually hides the potential. And that's the issue I'm trying to, to cover with the whole. And I'm firmly convinced after God knows how many years that using fully inclusive team tools it works much, much better. Much better bang for the buck. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you like to listen. For more behind the scenes and information, check out our Facebook page, at Quest to QHSC. For more information on our sponsor, Mango, just visit them at mangolive.com or find them on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.